The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 13. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Look the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, and the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Thank you, Annika, and thank you, Terry. Trained voice is a wonderful thing. We're talking about church. The series is uh, in its third week this week, and I just want to take a moment and recap where we've been for those of you who may have missed it. Two weeks ago was Memorial Day, and in talking about church, I connected the idea that just as in Memorial Day, it is a people, a nation, a government that decides that this will be a day set apart They can't make the day sacred by virtue of not being a a sacred organization, but they can make the day a holiday nonetheless, a day in which we have a national time of remembering those who've gone before and given themselves that we might be free. I tied that notion to the idea that only the church, by declaration of Christ, can carry forth in remembrance of him. And so as we have the communion service, as we share in the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate the Passover, not uh, just the Passover of movement from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan, but as we symbolically celebrate the Passover of deliverance from death into life and the fact that we will pass over from this life uh, on earth to a, a heavenly life, this is, this is the church's domain. And so two weeks ago, we focused on the power of enactment and the power of memory. These are two things that happen corporately and collectively that cannot happen significantly individually. Let me explain. By myself, I cannot have the collective memory of Christendom or of Judaism surrounding Passover and the crucifixion and the Lord's Supper, and all the things that happened in that, that is something that's happened historically that is recorded in the context of religious gathering and comes to me in authority uh, through the word, an authority that the church grants or gives. As I receive that, I cannot reenact the Lord's Supper on my own because it is not a solitary event. It is an event in which Jesus sits at the table and breaks bread in community with those who have chosen to follow. It is a time of modeling. It is a time of continued teaching. It is a time in which we take note and learn. Further, I not only can't reenact or enact that collective memory or reenact that event, but I am not in a position to celebrate the Lord's Supper in an individual basis. It was done even in Passover in family groups. And so by definition, by happening, by historical writ, these events are unique to themselves and perpetuate themselves in the 
enactment and reenactment and in the memory and in the way in which we collectively hold the memory of a Christ who died that we might live in memoriam. Last week, I took the passage taken from Proverbs 27, 17, where it says, iron sharpens iron. And I talked about the way in which the church is related to orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy. Now, last week's sermon was a little more controversial and want to try to clarify briefly any concerns anybody may have had. But in talking about orthodoxy, I declared that orthodoxy is the domain of the group and thereby the privilege of the church because orthodoxy means a commonly held or agreed upon position. I defined heterodoxy with a nuance, even though heterodoxy and heresy when it comes to definitions, have very similar definitions. That means to hold a view outside of that mainstream view. Okay, And I nuanced it by saying that we all understand heresy to have a particularly negative context. We don't have much familiarity with the use of the word heterodoxy. And so I beg your indulgence as I nuanced heterodoxy more toward a pluralistic understanding. That is to say, we have things that we don't see eye to eye on uh, in terms of its formulation or the words we use to describe a particular reality or even a position. But that heterodoxy is tolerable, is manageable as we live with the humility that understands that the group determination of orthodoxy is, holds, holds a superior place to our own opinion. Now, the way my own story manifested itself was with the usual strength of conviction that I bear. I don't think you would want it any other way, but some of you heard it in ways that could be uh, understood as uh, perhaps damaging. Not a lot of you. I only a couple of comments, but I want to be sure I was clear. The context of my statements of disagreement Uh, the illustration was women's ordination, has several qualifiers. First of all, women's ordination isn't an issue that is doctrinal. So there's no orthodoxy or unorthodoxy surrounding that. That isn't a doctrinal issue or, or so within the church. It's a discussion the church has had and published a position paper on. So that sort of clarifies it in the order of importance. Secondly, my personal conviction... Uh, in explaining my personal conviction, I described the church, somebody said, as wrong. And the context of that is not that I have the right as an individual to declare the body as a whole wrong. I can think that, I can have that opinion, and in this particular case, I do disagree with the body as a whole. But that isn't to say that that lack of, of agreement prohibits me or keeps me in this particular case from doing more good and participating in the larger activity of life in church. So I hope that's clarifying. But in discussing these things, what I was commending you for as a church, as we looked at scripture and differences of opinion as they unfold, and even in some cases the way in which scripture can sometimes say what look to be two different directions on something, I was saying I was commending you for the fact that this is a church in which a plurality of opinions has been welcomed 
but in orthodoxy has been understood uh, to be the way in which we teach and operate. So it, it was a, a controversial sermon for a couple of you, but I think for most of you uh, it was not an issue. And the intention was to clarify again that we as individuals don't determine what truth is. We can agree or disagree based on our own studies and engagement with the word as to what the truth ought to be. And that is why we affiliate ourselves with one organization sometimes and not another. But in the end, humility demands that we play a more cautious role when we approach the subject of what it is that we think Scripture teaches and believes. Because there are, well, you know how it is. No matter how good-looking you are, there's always someone out there who's better-looking, better right? No matter how tall you are, there's always someone taller. No matter how short you are, someone shorter. No matter how high your IQ is, there's always somebody out there higher. And no matter how high you can sing, there's probably someone who can sing even higher. So really in the end, the church is solely capable of coming to consensus and statement. So these are the domains of church that I've been speaking about and pulling from scripture and talking about because I want us as a group to understand why it is that we're here, what it is that we get to do, why it is that in a group setting we have this opportunity to be more together than we are when we're on our own, why it is that corporately we can accomplish something that we can never accomplish on our own, and why there are safeguards in the body that don't exist when we stand in isolation. So today in that context, we're going to look at two very simple concepts. Today's sermon is not particularly complex. I'm sorry for those of you who really like the complex ones. But today is one that you can, you can take and you can run with. Today we're going to look at witness and proclamation. Witness and proclamation. I want you to turn to Isaiah 43. Annika, I apologize, you were a victim of a misprint in the bulletin. The text is Isaiah 43, 10 to 13. I liked Isaiah 42 just fine, but we're going to look at Isaiah 43, 10 to 13 real quickly. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. E I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what it says. I, even I am the Lord. You are my witnesses. So how does that make you feel this morning? We have been chosen. 
we have been selected. We have been declared to be the ones who see and speak to the reality of a certain kind of truth. You know that in the Hebrew context, in order for anything to be true in terms of the court of law, or to be determined to be valid in terms of a testimony, it required at least how many witnesses? Two. Witness, we can say in the singular, but in order for there to be validity, it comes to us in the plural. God doesn't select a witness. God selects a people to bear witness to be witnesses. I was uh, using the color black uh, on the uh, bell cover a, f- a week or two ago to describe the way in which perception shapes reality. And there's something that is very powerful about y- universalized subjective experience. Let me put that in English. When all of us see and, and have words to describe in common a perception, the description of that per- perception becomes understood to be objective. Boy, I don't know if I can make it simpler than that. I've got to try. When we see a black tablecloth and we label it as such, that appears to me to be the color black. When the non-refracted light hits my eyes and the signal is sent to my brain and it processes what that looks like to me. And given my past experience, the word to describe it comes out as black. And all of you look at that and agree that the color is black according to your own subjective experience of the way in which the light hits that and hits your eyes and so forth. That universalized, that is to say the fact that all of us see something and perceive it to be that color makes it objectively for our purposes that color. Does that make sense? It moves it from the realm of the highly subjective to at least the less subjective if not objective. And so this is one of the things that science ignores consistently about the way in which church and spirituality and other things work. You see, they want to create repeatably observable events Of course, everybody knows that the fact that you observe an event actually shapes it and changes it. They want to call these repeatable events that they can observe objective. But there are problems with that. And in the end, they want to ignore the fact that when all of us together collectively have experienced something, they want to declare impossible for us to have experienced or non-real like God They don't want to pay attention to the fact that it is the repeatable subjective experience of the fact that we encounter a living God that makes it part of the reality that he is so. Was that way too much? I said this was going to be an easy sermon and here I go. When I feel God and you feel God, when I see God and you see God, when the Holy Spirit speaks to me and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, the fact that I've experienced that and you've experienced that and the person next to you experiences that, raises with every experience and every testimony the likelihood that it is actually something other than an individual misperception or even a collective social phenomena. And when we start moving across cultures, 
when we start moving across people groups and understand that worldwide there is a sense of other, something beyond human existence, we have a very strong argument for the very existence of God. Did I say that in a way you could... Good. You're a really smart group of people, but sometimes I struggle with words to get the right concept the right way. So, we have this thing that we get to be witness to. God has, first of all, declared us as witnesses. He's invited us to be his witnesses, but our own experience becomes a witness as well. You are my witnesses and the servants whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am the one that there is no one coming before or no one coming after, that I am the one for whom there is no other. I am the one that when I act, who can undo what I've done? I am the one true God. You are witnesses. I am the only Savior. Isn't that wonderful? You say, hey, wait a minute. Well, of course, Christ is part of this, isn't he? I am the one true Savior. And you are witnesses. You are witnesses. Well, I like that. I think there's something compelling about that. And there are lots of texts that I would encourage you to study and lots of texts you can look at in relationship to witness and proclamation. But if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 1, John addresses this subjectivity of experience just a little bit, the way in which we perceive and the way in which that attaches itself to a reality. He says in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have, what? Heard, which we have seen and which we have looked at and our hands have touched. In other words, with at least three sensory tools, we have experienced, we have witnessed, we have been part of something that was from the beginning. This we proclaim concerning the what? Word of life. And word is capitalized, right? And so does that make it a personal or impersonal word? Proper subject or improper subject? Proper. It's referring to Christ. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, remember? So John is saying, we proclaim this concerning the word of life, the life appeared, and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard, what we, and, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The church stands for two huge purposes. The church stands to give collective witness to the word made flesh. The one we have seen, the one we have heard, the one we have touched. The one that we have journeyed with, the one that we have experienced. We stand as living testimony to the word. And our job is to proclaim what we have seen and heard and touched. To proclaim a Christ who lives, a God who saves. That the community, that the bringing in of 
all of God's people, that the community of belief will make our own joy complete. It's not even only God's joy that's made complete in this, it's our joy that's made complete. This message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there's no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from sin. If we claim we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and there's no truth in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So this is the witness. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.